welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. So, we're looking at this whole idea of plan versus story. Plans, the best plans, have few surprises. The best stories have many surprises. And we're trying to reread the scripture as this unfolding story. And within this unfolding story, there's more than one way to actually interpret the story. And the way in which we interpret the story greatly affects the way in which we experience life. So that's why it's important. Now remember the goal at the my goal at the end of this whole period is I, I so hope this sense of a God for whom all things is possible, this sense of something truly beautiful, truly new is possible for my life. That's where we're heading. Um, and as we go there, we're going to reinterpret some stories that I think has been limiting that excitement and that expectation. So we dealt with Genesis 1 very quickly. Uh, uh, we scratched on the surface of that. I now want to move on to Genesis 3. But maybe to, to create a little bit more of context, you know, Genesis 1 was so radically different from the religious text of its days. In a world where there were many gods and the gods were always in competition with one another and we were kind of collateral damage because of the fights they had between themselves, people became, and people do become very religious in an environment of fear. So in that environment of fear, all the gurus were selling their magic potions, okay? Because if the gods began in this primordial water, we found some of that secret water that even the gods are subject to. And so selling incantations and selling potions to protect people from the evil spirits and gods all around began, became big business. And especially on the seventh day, that was a really a, a, a doubly evil day and you had to buy twice as many incantations as on the other day. And so Genesis' narrative is this radical idea that God is as evident as creation itself and he has no competition and everything he does is good. The chaos, it's good. The water, it's good. The plants, it's good. The, the fish, it's good. The, the animals are good. Hey, you are very good. <laughs> now, and, and on the seventh day, 
the only thing you have to do is chill and appreciate just how good all of this is. <laughs> Can you see that this, these ideas were really undermining the religious system of their world? This religious system that actually depended on your fear, that depended uh, on you being insecure that we can sell you our magic. The Genesis narrative becomes this radically irreligious text that says it's all good. God's good. His creation is good. Now that might raise some obvious questions. I mean it might bring a sense of relief but one of the questions it raises is what the heck is all the evil about then? <laughs> if God is good and he didn't pause one of the days to say okay today I'm introducing something that's going to make this a bit more interesting. Let's create the devil or let's create evil. Now you don't find that in the creation narrative. God never creates evil. And so the question would have become um, you know quite prominent. So we are human beings who are facing the reality of evil continually. Um, how does this fit in with this vision of God? And I think Genesis 3 is one of those stories that tries to address the fundamental human condition. Um, again, you know, we've added a lot of ideas around that text that they might not have thought of. The first writers of the text did not know of a being called Satan that was developed later. So our reading back into the text that the snake is Satan, whatever, they don't know anything about that. They take the symbolism of their day to communicate a specific idea and I want to stay as true to that idea as I can in presenting it to you. Um, the other thing as well to understand is the Elohim source was radically opposed to any idea of mythology because, because they were so trying to rid their community of the, these mythological ideas of gods everywhere and evil demons. But in the Elohim text you will never find a talking animal or anything that will kind of encourage magical thinking. But the Yahweh source is much more creative in how they want to present ideas. They are, culturally, they're different. Anything that needs to talk will talk, whether it's a donkey, a snake, or whatever. We want to bring, we want to communicate this point, and we're not going to allow facts to stand in the way of a good story. And so when, when the writer of Genesis 3 starts the story and he starts off with this warning, if you eat of this tree you will surely die. So right at the beginning man's most primordial fear, the fear of death, is introduced into this chapter and, and it sets the atmosphere for the rest of the story. There's suddenly this nervousness of 
everything was perfect, it was beautiful, it was this wonderful romantic novel of a naked boy and girl in a paradise, you know. <laughs> and now suddenly we're confronted with this idea of death. And, and you can see the nervousness when the whispering voice says, has God said you shouldn't eat? And she answers, he, he said we shouldn't even touch, which God never said, but it kind of it's part of this literary genre in which they try to expound the human condition. And the reality of the human condition is we live in this atmosphere where death is a reality. Today, we outsource death. We're kind of not that aware of it anymore. Um, if something goes wrong, there's people to take care of it. Uh, and it's not that in our face. But in a time where the reality was that if a disease came through your town, probably half of them went. And when the disease is gone, the enemy came uh, uh, and death was in your face. This is the reality of life. People's average age was less than 30, you know. <laughs> And so the, the, the question is, um, what is the human condition that, that has brought us to this place? And I think this is what the writer is trying to address in Genesis 3. Uh, and I think he's trying to tell us that I'm not talking about a real tree when he says, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, again, we're dealing with meaning beyond physical reality. If this is a historic story, I've got so many questions. Why make the fruit look so good? Why put the tree so that we can reach its fruit? You know, I've got many questions. But if this is an exploration of the human condition, I think it, it makes it relevant to us. Now, it's interesting how this conversation unfolds between this whispering voice, between the stirring up of desire, and, and the voice says, you will not surely die. In fact, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit is that he doesn't want you to be like him. And so a suggestion is made that you are not like God. Now, what is the truth? Maybe it's closer to Genesis 1.26 of a God of such generosity that he just gives his own image and likeness away without us earning it. It's part of our very creation is, yes, my image, yes, my likeness. It is, it is yours. It finds expression in you. But here in Genesis 3, the, the suggestion is made, God doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he withholds this tree. And uh, so, so it suggests you lack being. You are not what you should be. But there's this secret fruit. And if you can just get hold of this fruit, it will add to your being. See, this is how all of advertising in this world works. They, they pry on people's sense of lack of being. That's why when they show you the latest car, 
it's not just the car, it's the most handsome or most sexy model standing next to the car. The kind of guy you always wanted to be. Uh, but seeing that I cannot be that person, at least I can desire what he desires and have what he has. And somehow we think that's going to add to our being. And so this suggestion is made, God withholds the fruit because he doesn't want you to be like him. And the moment we perceive God as one who withholds, uh, we, we want that fruit more than anything else. We're suddenly in rivalry, suddenly in competition with this God. Our, our knowledge of good and evil has been twisted. And so what I want to do with this story is put it in the context of Philippians 2 and 3, where I think Jesus completely inverses the story. And that will give us a better understanding of what it is and what it's not. Ha! Huh. Philippians 3. We read about the God who sees such value in humanity that he pours himself out into human form and he does not grasp of the equality with God. <laughs> But he is simply satisfied with being fully human. Can you see the contrast? Here we have a story of a humanity with such a sense of lack that we grasp of the equality with God. Can we just become more like God? Can we just have more being? Here God comes and he says, you've got this story all wrong. I see such value and beauty in your existence that I'm going to pour myself out into you. <laughs> that the word is going to become flesh. Do you know Colossians 2? It says that God finds his most accurate expression in a human body. <laughs> In fact, verse 2 verse 8 begins by saying, don't let anyone cheat you through empty deception. If you see, if, there's a, if what you hear leaves you with a sense of emptiness, there's deception in it. Today, that whispering voice of Genesis 3 is most audible, unfortunately, very often under the banner of Christianity. The same voice that says, you lack being. You're not close enough to God. But we've got these seven steps. We've got these five principles. We've got these methods and formulas. This fruit. But if you just faithfully apply this, you're going to slowly move closer to being more like God. Jesus comes to totally inverse that message. To come and reveal to us a God of such generosity. That he pours himself out not because you've deserved it, not because anything. But your very existence is evidence of a God who desires you. 
See, we've often thought of that verse in John 1.14, the Word became flesh. We've kind of uh, thought, well, that's Jesus, because, you know, he's, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Uh, all things came into being through Him, and nothing exists except through this Word. Um, and we kind of imagine that that is that word which in verse 14 now becomes flesh in the person of Jesus and that's a valid interpretation but it's not the full interpretation because if you look at verse 13 it speaks about you and it says you were born not of the will of flesh nor of the will of man but of God and the thoughts of God became flesh. You are a thought of God in flesh form. God doesn't just think of you every now and then. If he had to not think of you, you would not be. You are a mirror neuron in the mind of God. This is what it looks like when God thinks. <laughs> the word became flesh. So maybe maybe Genesis 3 is this <coughs> unveiling of something that happens maybe in every human life. Maybe there's a period in, in any human life hey, where there's, as in Genesis 3, this suggestion that you are not enough that you lack being uh, and that that sense of inadequacy is then the very foundation from which all the other evils are born so the theological child of Adam and Eve this confused knowledge of good and evil is the first murderer um, Cain and when we enter into, when we live out of that place of inadequacy, the result is very often the kind of rivalry that destroys us and others. But Jesus, on the other hand, Philippians 3, comes to reveal a God that doesn't call you to become more spiritual, more better, get more being, but the God that sees such value and beauty in human life that he empties himself into human form he's fully satisfied with being human and he wants to unveil to you what it's like to live from this place of satisfaction to live from this place of fullness a place that's not going to produce rivalry you see when you in a situation of lack then the difference in others is going to always become an opportunity for conflict because your difference might be the difference that I'm missing and so in a way I want to possess your being I want to possess that difference but when you live out of this place of fullness and satisfaction then difference is no longer 
the opportunity for rivalry, but this is the very thing that makes life so exciting. That I can rejoice in your difference without having to possess it. I can, because I'm satisfied <laughs> with God's unique expression in me. I'm fascinated by God's unique expression in you. And, and together we reflect one another and in a way we constitute the image and likeness of God. So that's a, that's a little different way of interpreting Genesis 3. So remember we start the Genesis 1. Instead of seeing it, there was a perfect beginning and there's a perfect end, but we find ourselves in the mess in between. The alternative I suggested is that it is the very chaos and formlessness of the world we find ourselves in that God does his best creative work. So this moment where you find yourself at who you are is that opportunity for God to create. Genesis 3, instead of again being just an historic account of what went wrong in human history, maybe we can read it of what is the situation that brings about the conflict and rivalry in our own lives? And it's that suggestion that you are not like God, that you lack being, that there is some special fruit that will, or attainment that can satisfy that, and how Jesus overturns that. Instead of meeting a God that calls us to ascend, into greater spirituality. What we meet in Jesus is a God who descends into our humanity. <laughs> a God who says, uh, your existence, your humanity, right here, right now, that's my kingdom. That's my opportunity to be fully and truly myself. <laughs> you see, how could God become human and still remain God? <laughs> Maybe our ideas of what it, mean, what it means to be God needs to change. Because when we start with ideas, and we always start with our big ideas, first one is omnipotence omnipresence, omniscience. Those are the big ideas that we start with. What, what are the biggest things we can imagine? God must be that. And if you start with those ideas and then you look at this act of incarnation, you kind of think, well, that was a bit of a downgrade. I mean, what happened there? Was it just the the Father, Son, and Spirit, you know, the Father trying to get us to live the right life for a few thousand years and realizing this isn't working. And so they drew some straws, Jesus drew the short straw, and with kind of reluctance stepped into this human existence. I mean, if you've been omnipotent and omniscient, this must be quite a frustration. But he kind of endures it kind of looks forward to departing again, you know, so that it can be the word without limit once again. And 
Maybe he gets back to the father and says, wow, that being human thing is harder than what we imagine. You know? <laughs> Let's just cut the rules in half, call it grace, just make it a bit easier for all of them. But this is not, this is not what, what happens. John actually tells us in verse 10 that this word has always been in the world. In other words, the incarnation is not an alien invasion of a God that was distant. The incarnation, this word that incarnates, is the very foundation of all of creation. In other words, all of creation is incarnation. <laughs> Read it in verse 1. This word that was with God, that was God, all things was made through him and nothing exists except by him. This word was in the world. The world did not know him. But this word then becomes flesh and becomes so visible. See, Jesus is not the first time that God realizes what it's like to be human. Jesus is the event in which we realize that God has always known what it's like to be human. In him all things consists. There has not been one human being that has had one experience that God has not had it with them. <laughs> In him all things consists. And, and he doesn't just experience what you experience when you have the goosebumps and when the music's just right that he says, okay, well, I can draw near to that kind of experience. That is exactly the kind of distance in our thinking that Jesus comes to bridge. William Barclay, a, a theologian from this area, said it so beautifully. He explored both the pagan and the Jewish ways of understanding God in that time. And he said, for the pagans, you, they, they were striving to this, for this place of total peace. This place in which um, they defined this peace as the total absence of any problem, of any pain, of any conflict. And that's why their gods were far away. And beautiful poems would be written of the gods who sees a birth and a murder a wedding or a war, and they totally unmoved. Because if they allowed it to move them, they would lose their peace. And then he carries on and he speaks about most of the Jewish conceptions about God's holiness, in which they imagined God's holiness as his complete and utter separation from us. A God of such distance that he would be immutable in, in, in effect unchangeable by anything that happens to us and in the midst of this John's declaration of a God who becomes flesh was totally heretical because this God steps right into the middle of your mess but he does not lose his peace he has a piece of such integrity that, that he can step right into the middle of your situation and bring his peace right there. He reveals a God who's not so nervous or insecure 
that he needs to keep his distance because my goodness getting involved in your life is not <laughs> going to be the most peaceful experience but he reveals this God that says it is exactly <laughs> there that my creative possibilities finds opportunity of expression but they find nowhere else and so Jesus I think it's the Franciscan monks that called creation the first Bible um, and it is this idea what we saw this morning of all of creation glorifying the Lord it's this idea that all of existence is God manifesting himself in physical form in Jesus we find a person who so embraces this relationship that it actually becomes visible to all of us that we can see this is what God thought when he thought about us see Jesus doesn't come to say hey look what you can never be <laughs> now I'm here to te tease you with what you'll always strive for but never come close but just worship me from afar and I'll be happy now Jesus comes as this open declaration of this is what God sees in you and so maybe if we change our views of what God is and I think God gives a little flavor of that when he speaks to Paul in the 1 Corinthians 13 and he says you, you know Paul I know you guys are very impressed with power but even if I had the kind of power to move mountains and do anything you can imagine but I have not love I'm nothing maybe God's revealing something about himself uh, Paul it is not my power that makes me me in fact that was one of the most disappointing things about Jesus I mean the Jews kind of looked at him at the beginning and thought hmm he shows some potential you know he's healing some people maybe this can be <laughs> the Messiah but then he starts with all these irritating stories which always makes the other religions the heroes I mean uh, and then eventually he dies now of all the messiahs that we expected a dead one was not top of the list um, of all the kind of gods now we want the kind of god that's going to finally come and say this is it we're going to show the world how right you've been and how wrong we've been our idea of messiah is eventually we're going to get what we deserve and hopefully those other guys will get what they deserve as well what a disappointment when God comes and he doesn't come to display his omnipotence in the way we've expected but he comes to display that his power is the power of love that he is the omni vulnerable God <laughs> that he's the God who doesn't just want to grab a hold of you and make you do what you should but the God who puts himself into your hands and says what do you want to do with me 
<laughs> and maybe we haven't recovered from that shock of that Messiah and we kind of develop our eschatology now in terms of, okay, well, the Jesus that came didn't quite do all that we hoped he'd do, but thankfully he'll come again and hopefully this time he'll do it right. Uh, hopefully this time he'll boil our enemies' bloods and, you know, establish his kingdom and prove how right we've been. The only Jesus to come is the Jesus that came. And the same Jesus who at the very moment where our rejection of him was absolute forgave us and demonstrated the boundless generosity of his grace when while we nail him he says father forgive them not because they've repented just right they believed just right and now they acknowledge they're wrong but in the very moment that we nail him he says they don't know what they're doing <laughs> that's the Jesus that wants to come again in you I think God's second coming strategy is you. <laughs> His strategy has never changed. The Word wants to become flesh. The thoughts of God wants to find the opportunity to express itself in this world. In this place and so when he says to Paul I know you guys are very impressed with power but Paul it's not my power that makes me me and if I could speak with the tongues of angels and I know all things in other words guys I know you're very impressed with omniscience but it is not my knowledge that makes me me you see, this is why God could become human and not be reduced in his divinity. Because what makes God, God is love. And the human condition is in no way a limitation for the love of God to be displayed. <laughs> Every time you love, God is being himself in you. Every time you love, God is finding existence. God is finding presence in your presence, in your existence. Bonaventure, 13th century monk, made some radical statements still radical today it's quite interesting for a monk he starts off with saying with God does not exist as a being amongst other beings <sighs> rather he is the source of all existence and the source of all being in other words, the way in which God exists is through what he gives existence. 
and the way in which God has being is through the beings he creates he carries on and he says this God is this intelligible space whose center is everywhere <laughs> God's center is everywhere but his circumference is nowhere He's within, but he's not um, confined. He's without, but he's not excluded. <laughs> he's above, but, but he's not aloof. He's below, but he's not abased. He is the all in all. Isn't it nice to allow our small visions of God to be burst apart, to meet a God who's at least as big as this universe, a God who has experienced everything you've experienced with you. This God knows you and everything he knows about you makes him love you. He has no suspicion towards his own image and likeness. <laughs> See, I, I had arguments with God about that at one stage. I read 2 Corinthians 3.18, it said, Behold him as in a mirror. And I would say, how can I look at Jesus as in a mirror? I mean, this is this victorious, joyous incarnation of the thought of God himself. I know myself, it's not me. And God would say, just keep on looking. And I would think, well, maybe one day if God had many centuries in heaven, maybe I'll start resembling Jesus a little bit more. <laughs> and God just said, a mirror does not reveal tomorrow. <laughs> this is the truth of what I see in you right now. Keep on looking. Keep on looking until one of us changes our minds. <laughs> this is you. <laughs> now James 1 is so beautiful where it speaks about these two people who, who sees the face of their birth. It's so beautiful. When any man hears this message, he sees the face of his birth. That's in the mirror. Isn't that beautiful? But our gospel is not supposed to show people some great rottenness or some great evil. But it starts off with saying, this is the face of your birth. The prodigal son, what brings him to the point where he says, I'm going to return to my father? Was it somebody that came into that pigsty and say, boy, do you stink? And look at you, you filthy, you disgusting, you rotten to the core. No, that doesn't change his mind. The scriptures is clear what changes his mind. He sits in the middle of that mess and he remembers his father. That's our gospel. To bring people face to face again with the face of their birth. <laughs> to help them remember their father 
And it is in that moment of remembering that he says, I will return. I will run back. And he runs back with his whole story prepared. No. Father doesn't even listen to that story. He, he, he doesn't even want to know about how much you need to repent of. He says, listen, I've got the new story. Here's a ring for your finger. Here's a coat for your back. Here's shoes for your feet. There's a, a, a feast that's been prepared. Enter. You see, when you drop your story <laughs> and you embrace what the Father knows about you, heaven begins right here, right now. And maybe it's the older brother that kind of also has his own vision of the father and the story that says, um, you've never given a feast like this to me. I've been with you. I've been working so hard. Why, why don't I get what I deserve for my friends? See, he's also got his own vision and story of his life and of the father. And the father says, I've been with you all this time and everything I have is yours. You see, what makes his suffering, what makes his hell so uh, tormenting is not that it is some other place, some other time. But what makes his hell so, so unbearable is that he can smell the food. He can hear the music, but he does not participate. Hell is being with the Father, but not knowing him. <laughs> What a gloriously good gospel we have to bring people face to face again with the face of their birth. So James 1 says, whenever this message is preached, it's like a man that sees the face of his birth as in a mirror. Now one of them goes away and he forgets what manner of man he is. See, the, 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 the key here is forgetting or remembering. It is in the forgetting that it's so easy to fall back in the same old habits, in the same old pattern of just existing according to the story that I've always told myself. But there's the second man who looks and he continues to look and he is mesmerized by what he sees. See, there's a place of encounter with God. Remember, we spoke about idols. We, we create our idols when we draw near to God in this encounter and, and we leave this place where we've just glimpsed something and we leave it and we go describe it. We go and capture it in our, and we go and tell others about what we've glimpsed. Uh, and we create another idol. But there's a place where you continue to look until you become aware of another gaze more intently focused on you. Until your sight is subverted to the place where you are no longer trying to see God. But you are seeing yourself through the eyes of God. <laughs> and it is that inversion of vision that transforms us. That's why David in Psalms 139, David is not highly excited about his new doctrine about God. Guys, I've discovered this 
revelation. It's amazing. Now, what, what excites David is not his thoughts towards God. But what excites David is this simple fact. God is thinking about me. <laughs> and these thoughts aren't that complicated. Now, when I met Mary Ann, my thoughts towards her wasn't very complicated. I kind of just wanted to see her sit down and stand up. <laughs> and this is kind of the idea of Psalms 139. You know my sitting down and my standing up. How profound. <laughs> God's just watching you. Sit down. Stand up. Like someone who has fallen in love. Like someone that has found in you <sighs> the opportunity to be fully and truly himself. <laughs> Woo! How many are your thoughts towards me? More than the sand of the sea. I can go to sleep and I wake up and you are still thinking about me. What is man that your mind is full of us? That God thought and he created the galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy, about 200 for each of us on this planet. <laughs> And that was a thought that did not even break a sweat. But what fills his mind is you. <laughs> See, in you something happens that has not happened as far as we know anywhere else. Consciousness. What a mystery that in you beauty and meaning can be acknowledged, can be recognized. What a wonder you are. <laughs> Thank you, Papa. And so the second man, he looks and he continues to look and he's mesmerized by what he sees. He looks into this perfect law of liberty. You see, this is a different law. This is not the kind of law that restricts your liberty. This is the kind of law that says you need to be fully and truly yourself. <laughs> it's the law of liberty. It's the law that says if you really see what God sees in you, you can do whatever you want to. And it's good. This God doesn't even want to change you in the sense that we've learned that there's some evil and bad things about you. This God just wants you to so see who you truly are that the only things that needs to change about you is the things that's not really you. <laughs> only things he wants to get rid of is the stuff that harms you but the real you the you that was 
created in the image and likeness of God, the you that is sustained in existence by a God who desires you into existence moment by moment by moment, that you is fully accepted, fully embraced, fully approved. Glory. What a beautiful gospel. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.